today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. The worldly sorrow is the sorrow of being found out. The worldly sorrow is the sorrow of being exposed. And that, in the end, leads to death. The difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is that godly sorrow leads to true change. Whereas worldly sorrow that leads to death does so because there's no change. You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Farag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of 2 Corinthians. We've all had to say we're sorry for something. As Pastor J.D. explains, were we sorry because we got caught or were we really sorry for what we did? We experience godly sorrow to bring about repentance and change. It serves a purpose in God's kingdom. Don't be fooled by the sorrow of this world, which brings no change. Make it count for something. Now, be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of this broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. Now, here's Pastor J.D. with his continuing study called Obstacles to Godliness. On Sunday mornings, we're going through 2 Corinthians, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And today we'll finish chapter 7. Our text will be verses 8 through 16. I'll have you turn there in your Bibles at this time. I'll begin reading in verse 8, where the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is writing to the Corinthian church and says... Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now, verse 9, I am happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended and so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though, verse 12, I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad, verse 16, 
I can have complete confidence in you. So today's teaching is part three of a series I've titled Obstacles to Godliness. Here in the remainder of the chapter, the Apostle Paul is continuing in his expressing to the Corinthian Christians how encouraged he is by them. And the reason that he's encouraged by them is that they had a godly sorrow that had resulted in a genuine repentance, which actually came about due to their willingness to receive Paul's rebuke. And boy, did Paul rebuke them. Paul was certainly blunt with them. As we saw last week, there is this common denominator of sorts in everything that Paul writes them concerning their unwillingness to receive Paul's previous rebuke. In his first epistle, he had written to them very bluntly, even, you could argue, very harshly, but rightly, because of their unwillingness and their obstinance, and I'll add their spiritual pride and arrogance as well. And in so doing, Paul makes it abundantly clear in no uncertain terms that these issues with the Corinthians and their unwillingness had become an obstacle, a hindrance to their living godly Christian lives. For the benefit of those who weren't with us last week, I'll just very quickly go through the first three obstacles that we looked at last week, starting with the first one in verse 1, which is an unwillingness to live spiritually pure lives. It's interesting because Paul says to them that we must purify ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and he says also the spirit. In other words, filthiness of the spirit. This is spiritual filth, spiritual wickedness, spiritual impurity. And he goes on to say that we're to do so perfecting holiness out of a reverence for God. The second obstacle to godliness is in verses 2 and 4 through 4, and it's an unwillingness to be honest and open. Paul asks them, even I would say pleads with them, to open their hearts to him as he had with them, and he had been completely honest with them. He had wronged none of them, and he says, though I've spoken bluntly to you, uh, I'm encouraged by you because of his willingness to be honest and open and transparent. That brought us to verses 5 through 7, where we looked at the third obstacle to godliness, which is an unwillingness to be teachable. This is huge. We talked at length about this last week. Paul tells them that in spite of the conflicts from without and the fears from within, his joy was greater than ever 
because they had expressed deep sorrow and concern. And that actually ties into our text today and the fourth obstacle to godliness, which is an unwillingness to repent. In verse 8, Paul says that even if he caused them sorrow by his letter, he didn't regret it, though he did at first, in the sense that he saw it had hurt them, even though it was for a little while. And in verse 9 he says that he's now rejoicing because their sorrow, this godly sorrow, led to repentance, just as God had intended. And then in verse 10 he says that it's godly sorrow that brings about repentance, and that's what leads to salvation, and it's also what leaves no regret. But then he contrasts it with a worldly sorrow. And the worldly sorrow is what brings about death. You have two kinds of sorrows, and again, we talked about this last week as well. What Paul is saying here is that he initially regretted sending his first letter, but because they repented, he no longer regrets it. He's actually glad that he did because it had brought about a godly sorrow on their part. And as such, their godly sorrow led to a genuine repentance, which is the polar opposite of the worldly sorrow that leads to death. The worldly sorrow is the sorrow of being caught. The worldly sorrow is the sorrow of being found out. The worldly sorrow is the sorrow of being exposed. And that, in the end, leads to death. The difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is that godly sorrow leads to true change whereas worldly sorrow that leads to death does so because there's no change. Pastor Chuck Smith has a great contrast that he pointed out from Scripture. He says, sorrow alone accomplishes nothing. Peter was sorry. He was sorry he denied Christ, and he repented. That was a godly sorrow. Judas was also sorry. He was sorry that he betrayed Christ, but instead of repenting, he committed suicide. He killed himself. Think about that. That is a very stark contrast, an example of the two kinds of sorrow. There's the godly sorrow that leads to repentance. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Romans 2.4. It says this, It's the kindness of God that leads a man to repentance. I think sorely lacking in the Christian church today, certainly in the Christian home today, and I'll even say in the Christian marriage today, is repentance. Repentance from sin. Sin in the home, sin in the life of a Christian, and even sin in the church. As we're about to see, Paul is going to talk about a very serious and grievous sin that had taken up residence there in the Corinthian church. 
But it's the kindness of God when God in His mercy and His grace does not pay us as our sins deserve. When we're on the receiving end of that mercy, that grace, that kindness from God, it's then that we are brought to our knees with a godly sorrow that leads to a true repentance. I wonder if there was a godly sorrow in our Christian homes, in our Christian churches today, that led to this genuine repentance and change, which is, by the way, what repentance means. Repentance is one of those big words. And by the way, if you ever do a word study on repentance, you're in for a real, well, what's the word I'm looking for? Shock. You're going to be shocked to find that replete throughout the pages of Holy Writ, you will find this one word, repentance, throughout. The first word, when Jesus began his public ministry, John the baptizer, the first word, repent. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. Throughout scripture you find this word, and I'm sorry to say, <laughs> be hard pressed to find a church today that even utters the word. Alan Redpath of True Repentance writes, Godly sorrow that leads to repentance, therefore, is a sorrow that leads to a change of purpose, of intention, and of action. It is not the sorrow of idle tears. It is not crying by your bedside because once again you have failed, nor is it vain regret, wishing things had never happened, wishing you could live the moments again. No, it is not that. It is a change of purpose and intentions, a change of direction and action. It is real change. It is genuine repentance. And you're changed from the inside out by the grace of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit to live a holy life. That is true repentance. And it comes by way of the kindness of God that leads us to this sorrow, this godly sorrow, not the sorrow of being found out, not the sorrow of being exposed, not the sorrow of being caught. It's the sorrow of, oh God, oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the godly sorrow that leads to repentance. G. Campbell Morgan of this wrote, Repentance is not sorrow only. It may be unaccompanied by sorrow at the time, but sorrow will always follow. Sorrow for the past. But this change of mind is the great thing. Perhaps you've heard it said that God cannot change our heart until we first change our mind. God will never force holiness 
repentance on us, he has to lead us to it so that we of ourselves will make the decision first changing our mind and in so doing give him permission, if you will, to have unfettered access to our hearts to change our hearts. What do we know to be true about our hearts? Are they not deceitfully wicked? Think about that. Deceitfully wicked. Oh, but I have a good heart. No, you don't. No, you don't. Oh, Pastor Shirley, you have a good heart. No, I don't. (laughs) My heart, your heart, is so deceitfully wicked that you have the propensity to deceive yourself. And that's why we're told that our hearts are so deceitfully wicked, we don't even know how deceitfully wicked they are. That's why God has to change our heart. He has to change our heart. On the way here this morning, I knew that this was just one of several obstacles to godliness. And I told myself that I would not take the whole time and talk about repentance. Though I did entertain that for a while. (laughs) And the reason is, is because so heavy on my heart today is this need for godly sorrow and repentance. And so before we go to verses 11 through 13, I just want to ask you to allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart in the quietness of where you're sitting and see if there be anything at all that is keeping you from knowing Him, hearing Him, loving Him, living for Him. And allow Him to put His finger on it, and then allow Him to remove it. He'll do it. He'll do it. And only you know what that is. And the Lord knows what that is. It's that something that has gained access to your heart. It's taken up residence in your Christian life. And you cannot even begin to understand how destructive it is and dangerous it is. And I'll add, deadly it is, if you don't let the Lord deal with it. 
Let's move on to our fifth obstacle to godliness, and it's an unwillingness to right wrongs. In verse 11, Paul tells them to look at what this godly sorrow has produced in their lives. And he lists them and names them, and among them are earnestness, eagerness, a righteous indignation to see that justice is done. They had a wrong that needed to be made right in their church. And in verse 12, he tells them that even though he wrote them, it wasn't on account of the one who did the wrong, but rather it was for them. He did this for them because of his love for them. And in verse 13, he says, by this they were encouraged and were especially delighted to see how happy and blessed and encouraged Titus was by their refreshing him while Titus was visiting them. Actually, the Apostle Paul sent Titus to them instead of going himself. He did go on his way to Macedonia to visit the Corinthian church, and it was horrible. It was such a terrible uh, experience. And that's why he did not, on his way back from Macedonia, go and visit them the second time. He just, he couldn't handle it. What do you mean? Well, I really believe that the Apostle Paul was very hurt by the Corinthian church. Usually it's the other way around, isn't it? People in the church are hurt by the pastor of the church. But in this case, I would submit that this pastor, this apostle who planted this church was hurt by this church. It was so hurtful to him what they had done to him, said about him, and what they had allowed into that church. But when he sends Titus, he sends with Titus a letter, and they receive Titus, and they have this godly sorrow, and they repent, and it changes everything. And Titus comes back with this good report, and he says in verse 13 that by this they were so encouraged and they were so delighted to see how blessed and encouraged Titus was as well. That's all we have time for today on In Spirit and Truth. If you'd like to listen to today's message, head to InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com and click on the Listen tab. You'll also have access to a number of other teachings by Pastor J.D., as well as his weekly Aloha Prophecy Updates. You can download our mobile app to take these teachings with you wherever you go. Learn more about In Spirit and Truth and Pastor JD at our website and also on Twitter. We'd love to have you join the conversation there. We'd also love to meet you in person as well and would like to invite you to join us for our weekly services here at Calvary Chapel Kaneohe. We gather each Sunday at 8.30 and 10.45 a.m. and also on Thursdays at 7 p.m. 
and you'll find more information at InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com. Just click on Calvary Chapel Kaneohe at the bottom of the page. Before we end today, Pastor J.D. has an encouraging word to share with you. It is such a blessing for me personally to be able to share God's Word with you on each edition of our In Spirit and Truth radio broadcast. Also, I'm so very thankful that you've tuned in to listen. The book of 2 Corinthians provides us a much-needed reminder of how divine power is realized in our human weakness. Sadly, though, this is not a popular topic today because, as one so aptly said it, the gospel does not ride on health and wealth, but on weakness. The ministry of the Spirit is not one of splash and flash, but of meekness and weakness. It's for this reason that 2 Corinthians has become one of my favorite books in the Bible. Not only does it provide us with the key to living victorious Christian lives, it also provides us practical application concerning how we treat other believers in our lives. It's my hope and prayer that you will be as encouraged and blessed by this book as I was. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again for another edition of In Spirit and Truth Radio. 